under individualism and patriarchy, you can either be connected or you can be powerful, but you can't be both at the same time. Leading men and women and non-binary folk into intimacy is synonymous with leading them beyond patriarchy and this culture of individualism. It's really a new frontier for all of us. So what if being fiercely self-reliant and individualistic was actually a kind of a terrible thing? I know, I know. It sounds silly, right? I mean, isn't that the very thing we're told to strive for from the youngest age? And especially in our culture now as adults? Well, the problem is living in a me-first or a me-over-you world is not only destroying our personal relationships, it's destroying us, our states of mind, and even our physical well-being. And intimacy, deep connectedness, even reliance on and elevating others just might be the solution to much of what ails us. Now, that idea may sound a little bit strange at first. It's hard to argue that the rise of a wildly individualistic society has also gone hand in hand with the destruction of social bonds and friendship, mental health, and nearly every marker of health in communities as well. It turns out that as humans, we're all designed to be in relationship with each other to experience the positive effects of connectedness. And when that breaks down, well, so do we. And today's guest, Terry Real, who likes to joke that he began his career as a family therapist at the age of four, drives home this point in a fascinating conversation on intimacy, interconnectedness, trauma, relationships, and the power of us, especially at this moment in time. Terry is an internationally recognized family therapist, speaker, and author. He founded the Relational Life Institute, offering workshops for couples, individuals, and parents, and a professional training program for clinicians to learn his relational life therapy methodology. In addition to being a therapist and a teacher for over 25 years now, Terry is also the best-selling author of I Don't Want to Talk About It, How Can I Get Through to You, and The New Rules of Marriage, and his new book, us getting past you and me to build a more loving relationship. It's a guide not just for couples, but also for really all human beings filled with tools and advice and help for anyone to tap into their most collaborative and relational self. In today's conversation, we dive into all these different topics with Terry, and he shares his own story of growing up in a pretty dysfunctional home, the way he describes it, to reveal how the techniques that we have all learned to survive dysfunction as children can take a toll on our present relationships and lives when we bring them into our grown-up existence. And we explore how re-engaging with people around us that we hold most dear, and maybe those that we don't hold most dear but would like to, how that just may save not only those relationships but our lives as well and society more broadly. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, it's interesting. I heard you say not too long ago that you described sort of like a family lineage of being the son of a depressed, angry dad who lived in an unhappy marriage, who was himself the son of a depressed, angry dad who lived in an unhappy marriage. When I hear things like that, one of my curiosity, I mean, I have a whole bunch of curiosity, but one of them is, do you have a sense for how old you were, how young you were when you really first started becoming aware of that? You know, uh, Jonathan, I, I tease and say uh, I began my career as a family therapist at about the age of four. Um, a lot of people have noted this. When you're a, a child in a dysfunctional home, if you're a woman connected to a grandiose man, if you're a member of a marginalized minority group dealing with a, someone from the majority, you develop great sensitivity. It's what Alice Miller called the drama of the gifted child. The gift is the gift of being able to read people, and you read them because you know at three, four, uh, that it's in your interest to keep these people regulated uh, because when they aren't regulated, you pay for it. So one of my gifts, and I think this is gendered, I think it's because I was a boy, I never took it in. I never was swamped with great shame, and there was plenty of it, but not. I didn't feel like I was nuts. I knew at a very early age that they were nuts. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't a caretaker, that I didn't love them and want to make them better, and that my life didn't depend on it. So my adaptation, we're going to talk a lot about what I call the adaptive child part of us. My adaptation from as far back as I can remember is the gift of knowing how to read a room uh, and the burden of feeling like it was my responsibility to keep that room safe, like all traumatized kids, so that I could be safe. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it It occurs to me also that what what might go along with that is a sense of 
you know, hypervigilance. Um, it's like, like perpetual scanning mode, which, which can have its benefits. You, know, you really become aware of social dynamics and context and, and subtext. But at the same time, that level of sustained hypervigilance has got, has, there's got to be a, a side of it that takes something from you as well. Yeah, well, we know this from trauma. This is the hallmark of trauma. When you're in a dangerous environment, and that very much includes emotionally, you know, they've done research and people who have been subject to both physical and emotional abuse will tell you they prefer the physical abuse, no problem. It's the emotional abuse that really gets to you. And when you grew up in a dangerous environment, your central nervous system is being formed. You're in a state of fight or flight, of hypervigilance, while your nerves are being grown. And the consequence of that, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out, is that your hair trigger from that point forward. But you know what? When it comes to trauma, you can have a ton of it and grow up in an overtly violent home the way I did. You can have subtle Trauma, we call it little t trauma, relational trauma. It's more like water on a stone. It's you can have misalignment that hurts. That's repeated a hundred million times a year, and the wound and the adaptation to the wound are still very much a part of who you are and what you bring into your current relationships. That's that's what my new book is all about, how to understand your particular wound and more important, the way you adapted to that wound, how that adaptive part of us, I call it the adaptive child part of us, spills into your relationships and makes a mess of things and how to move into a wiser part of us, a less triggered part of us. It's literally a different part of our brain. It's the prefrontal cortex. And that's the part of us that's here and now and not triggered. The part that can stop and think and reason. You know, one of the things I say is there's no such thing as overreacting. It's just that what you're reacting to may not be what's in front of you. Mm. It may be what's behind you. Your past, you know, there's no such thing as trauma memory. That's, that's a misnomer. You don't remember trauma, you relive it. You're not thinking, I'm walking down Main Street remembering combat. You hear a noise, you've got a gun in your hand, you're back in combat. And so what happens when we're flooded and we get triggered whenever anything in the present comes close enough to what happened to you as a kid, that you get confused. And the past overtakes the present in your body, viscerally. And you are back there, you know, My dad was a harsh, uh, violent guy. He was also a very loving guy. He was both. Confusing. My wife speaks to me harshly or she's critical to me. Boom. I am that four-year-old. She is that six-foot-three towering man. And my defenses are up. My knee-jerk automatic response, my adaptive child, is fight. And so is her. So we're off to the races. The essence, how you know you're in your triggered adaptive child is how automatic it is. Mm. It's not thoughtful. It's knee-jerk. And for those of you listening to the podcast, I have three, fight, flight, and fix. 
Are you, and you can flee, by the way, uh, sitting six inches away from somebody. That's called stonewalling. But are you a fighter like me? Screw me, screw you. Are you a fleer? I'm going to shut down. I'm not listening. I'm out of here. Or are you a fixer? Oh my God, something's bad. Let me fix it so that I can feel better. Fight, flight, or fix. Take a moment, if you're listening, and be honest with yourself. What is the adaptive child part of you? When In the heated moment, where do you go? And Jonathan, where do you go? Um, I am, it's interesting as you're laying that out, you know, and, and I had an immediate different reaction too. the, I learned years ago, this sort of like the sympathetic and parasympathetic response, fight or flight. And then it seems like that model had evolved to fight, flight or freeze. You know, like right. there was this understanding that sometimes we just become utterly paralyzed and, and we do neither. So you're, you're, you swap in this sort of like thing, which is fix as part of sort of the polyvagal spectrum, which is fascinating to me. Um, it's in the literature now. It's actually fight, flight, freeze. And I collapse freeze and I call freeze uh, frozen flight. Hmm. But I'll include it. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. What's, tell me about that part. Well, that's when the animal you know, rolls over on his belly or starts licking the paws of the more dominant animal. It's like, I'll be subservient to you. You uh, let me regulate you so you don't attack me. And that fawn in the animal kingdom I speak of in humans as fixing. Uh, It's not an adult responsible, let me see what I can do here. Right. It's a compulsive, anxiety-driven, I won't feel good unless you feel good. Let me make you feel good at all costs. Right. It's sort of a, a, a let, let me subsume my identity into the, like whatever I think is going to bring peace in the moment, even if it completely is not in service of my own humanity. Yes. So do you, you can pass if you want, but I'm wondering. Yeah, no, no I'm curious. And I was thinking, I said, you know, I think... In an earlier part of my life, I would say it would have been um, flight. You know, any sort of um, experience that was relationship-based where I saw you know, the opportunity for conflict, I would probably just try and check out. I was very avoidant. And what's interesting is I, when I think about the word fight, it doesn't resonate with me because I'm also, at this point in my life, having been knocked around enough and and having a, a pretty devout um, mindfulness meditation practice for about a dozen years, I feel like the the response for me is more zoom out, pause, and then engage probably on the what you would designate as fight side of it, but not in an adversarial way, more in an engaged, in, in an engaged responsive way. At least that's my sense of it. It'd be, it'd be interesting to ask, ask my wife, actually, um, what, what her sense is from the other side. Oh, and what is your new uh, hard-won fight response uh, look or sound like? Um, I'm trying to figure out if you're fighting out of your adaptive child or if you're standing up for yourself out of your wise adult? Yeah, I, I would probably say it depends on the moment and the circumstance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I my sense is that it's more standing up for myself rather than defaulting to some sort of adaptive child slash, you know, like coping um, mechanism. And I wonder if part of that is because I felt safe as a child. I felt loved as a child. I felt... Like I could be who I needed to be and had parents who modeled that, even though they ended up not with each other. Mm. And so I wonder if part of that is is that actually I, I was given a lot of 
what I yearn for to feel safe and comfortable and able to express myself as a child. And that patterning has followed me for a large part of my life. Well, Jonathan, you may be healthy. Uh, oh, no, no. <laughs> it's been, you know, uh, I, I, over 30 years of being a therapist, I've collected a lot of cartoons. And yeah. one of them was this huge sort of convention hall. And the banner read, Adult Children of Healthy Parents. And there were like four people in the. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that might be the healthy response, particularly as you describe it, that you stop and pause yeah. uh, and then make a decision. That stopping and pausing is you pulling out of the triggered uh, subcortical parts of your brain, fight, flight, or effects, and accessing the prefrontal cortex, the wise adult, the part of you that can really be there and make a conscious choice to do something more functional. I'm going to say your adaptive child is a fleer and that in your wise old age, <laughs> you have developed what my book is all about, what I call relational mindfulness, the capacity in the heated moment to take a breath or 20, take a break. I'm a big fan of breaks. Take a walk around the block. Get recentered until you're out of that automatic triggered response it's what I call remembering love. Remember the person you're speaking to is someone you care about. Remember why you're opening your mouth is to make things better. And when you're recentered in that wiser part of you, then you go back into the fray and deal with what was ever upsetting. But I do have a note on how to stand up for yourself. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, please. See, the essence of this new book is about learning to live relationally. Uh, it's us. It's, uh, the, the prefrontal cortex has the capacity to remember that we're a whole, that we're a team. When you get triggered and you move into that trauma response, you forget that. You, you don't have the, the more primitive parts of the brain that light up uh, don't have the capacity to remember the whole. And so it's you and me, adversaries in a power struggle. One wins, one loses. When you're there, get out. You're not in your right mind. Uh, take a break and get centered and then use relational skills. One, one of the bitter pills is that this triggered, automatic, reactive part of us it does not want to be intimate. It wants to be, it wants survival. It's about me, me, me. You know, uh, for decades, I ran around the country giving skills workshops. And my favorite slide was this one. Other workshops teach you skills. We deal with the part of you that won't use them. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the book Us is very much a critique of what I call the toxic culture of individualism right. in the West. And what thinking like an individual does uh, in your relationship to yourself, self-esteem, to others, the people you live with, and to other races, other cultures, to the planet. And uh, recovering the us, remembering uh, that we're a team together, is a completely different energy and language than you versus me. Now, a lot of people, when they stand up for themselves, they do so as an individual. And a lot of therapists and 12-step sponsors and feminist groups will cheer you on. I wouldn't take that bullshit if I... No, 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 no. 
It's not, I was weak, now I'm strong, go screw yourself. It's, I was weak, now I'm strong, let's empower each other to make this work for both of us. That's thinking relationally. It's a whole different ballgame. So what I teach people, and it's, it, it, I go into this in detail in the book, is what I call soft power or loving power. Under individualism and patriarchy, which I've been writing about for 30 years, you can either be connected or you can be powerful, but you can't be both at the same time. When you step into power, because power is dominance, power is power over, not with. When you step into power, you break the connection. And one of the things I say is that leading men and women and non-binary folk into intimacy is synonymous with leading them beyond patriarchy and this culture of individualism. It's really a new frontier for all of us. So what does soft power sound like? Instead of, Jonathan, don't talk to me like that, which is fair enough, it becomes, Jonathan, I want to hear what you have to say. Could you tone it down so I can really listen to it? Instead of saying, don't treat me like that, you say, uh, honey, when you just called me a big fat pig, it pushed me to the other side of the room. I would like to be close to you. Could you say you're sorry and make some repairs so I can feel close to you again? Who the hell talks like that? Who the hell stands up for themselves and cherishes their partner in the same breath? It's new territory, and that's what I've been writing about. Can, can I tell you a story? Yeah, please. I love to tell This is an absolutely true story. So heterosexual couple comes to me, young, and it's a classic deal. She wants sex none of the time. He wants sex all the time. So like any good therapist, I get them off of the actual thing into what it means. What does it mean to you to have sex? And this guy, unfortunately, like a lot of men, filtered almost all of his emotional needs through the physicality. It meant he was desirable. She liked him. They were on the same page. They were close. Things were good between It meant everything. So they come back two weeks later. It's absolutely true. All smiles. I said, the sex thing, we got it knocked. Uh, uh, okay, what's the story? About three days after our session, the woman tells me, my husband wanted sex. And instead of my usual, which is to go to the other side of the room, I walked over to him, I gave him a big fat kiss, put my arms around him, looked him in the eyes, and said something like this. Honey, the first thing I want you to know is I think you're really hot. You, you got a great bod. You're a really handsome man. You turned me on. You're and more than that. You're a good man. I feel loved by you. I feel close to you. I want to be in your arms. I think, oh, by the way, I don't want to have sex tonight. And anyway, I think you're wonderful. And I feel really, and to his amazement, the guy looked at her and went, uh, okay. And they were done. And the reason why they were done is she said yes to him in so many wonderful ways that the no of not having sex went down like not a problem. We don't know how to say no to a particular issue and yes to our partners in the same breath. That's new territory for us. And most of us have to learn how to do that. Yeah. And what a beautiful story. You know, I would imagine that so much of that is that we are 
without the objectivity of somebody like going to somebody who can sort of like sit between us and say like have you thought that maybe there's this bigger dynamic happening that the ability for two people or three people people in relationship to sort of pull out and gather that level of understanding and say well this is not actually about the in this case the sex it's about all of the associations about identity that i'm folding into this act and feeling like rejecting the act is rejecting all of these things that I hold dearly onto as like a, a source of identity for me. How does somebody get to the place where they are able to sort of zoom the lens out and identify and the nuance, what's really happening below the surface? Because you can't have the reaction that you just talked about until you can actually see what's really going on. Well, you can learn to say yes while you stand up for yourself and then apply it to a particular situation. But the only part of you that is capable of doing that is the non-triggered adult part of you. I have a saying, there's no such thing as overreaction. It's just that what we're reacting to may not be what's in front of us, it may be what's behind us. So the, the principal art is staying seated in this adult that can learn these skills. And you can learn these skills, including the, in some ways, most important skill, the fundamental skill of writing yourself when you're reactive and triggered, taking a break, taking a walk around the block, having a little chat with that little boy or little girl that is what is being triggered. It's not you, it's that young version of you. Uh, and getting re-centered into the place of you that can remember love and use these skills. And the skills can be used cross-issue. You don't have to be a psychoanalyst and unearth uh, the deeper meaning of every issue. You can learn how to be more related. Can I give you an, a, another concrete skill? Yeah, sure. So, first of all, you change the map. You move from thinking like two adversarial individuals, and you remember the us, the team. That changes everything. The relational answer to the question, for example, who's right and who's wrong, is who cares? It doesn't matter. What matters is how are we going to work this issue in a way that works for both of us? So changing the map and learning to think relationally changes everything. It's like the difference between, I need more sex in here, and honey, uh, we both deserve a good sex life. What do we need to do together to jumpstart this thing? It's a completely different energy and a completely different language and a completely different toolbox. So here's a tool. You and me consciousness versus us consciousness. When we are faced with a unhappy, angry, complaining partner, in other words, when the moment calls for repair, I'll talk more about repair, we lose our shit. And we usually reference two reference points. I talk to this day in and day out of my office. Our first reference point is accuracy. Well, that's right. That's not, that's half right. Yeah, that's sort of right, but you have to understand that. Here's the first bitter pill. There's no place for objective reality in personal relationships. Relation, objective reality is great for getting, you know, a vaccine made, uh, but it's irrelevant in personal relationships. We don't care who's objectively right or wrong. The second reference that we all go to is us. 
at me. Uh, I can't believe I have to put up with this shit. Here we go again. Blah, 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 blah. How unfair is this? How long is this going to go on for? And what I teach people, and it's literally a teaching, I want you to give up those two reference points, objective reality and me, me, me. And as an act of generosity, I want you to lose your ego, walk over the bridge to your partners. This is what I want you to replace it with. Compassionate curiosity about your partner's subjective experience. It's not about setting the record straight. It's not about you, you, you. And it sounds as simple as this. Honey, I'm sorry you feel bad. I love you. I don't want you to feel bad. Tell me what's going on. Tell me more about it. That's all you need. And if you really want an A+, you get to say, I can understand how you might feel like that. That's empathy. And if you want an A++, you get this punchline. This is a line I would like all your listeners to jot down. Honey, is there anything I could say or do right now that would help you feel better? That's called repair. Is there some, What do you need? Is there something I can say or do right now that would help you feel better? But you have to put yourself aside. And you have to put the record aside. And you have to be willing to be generous to your partner in their distress. Reach in to their upset and see if you can... Everybody gets this wrong. That all relationships are a dance of harmony, disharmony, and repair. And our culture doesn't teach the skills of repair. It doesn't even acknowledge that disharmony exists. But when you're faced with an unhappy partner... Start off with the wisdom that is in your interest to help them be happy with you. It's in your interest. This is not a dialogue. Everybody gets this wrong. It's a one-way street. I tell people, think of yourself as being at the customer service window. Somebody comes to you and says, my microwave doesn't work. They don't want to hear you say, well, my toaster doesn't work. They want you to fix their damn microwave. When you are faced with an unhappy partner, Help them get happier. It's in your interest to do that. Uh, you love them and you're there. You know, I have these big burly guys, Jonathan, and they say to me, why should I work so hard to please my wife? And I go, knock, knock, dummy, you live with her, okay? That's why you should. It's in your interest. But that's remembering the us, the whole. Yeah, I I mean, it's a powerful sort of way to re-examine it, the notion of harmony, disharmony, and then to really focus on, like, what is the process of repair here? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. What occurs to me also is like, I wonder if there is a bit of a slippery slope. You described earlier these sort of different states, fight, flight, freeze, or fix, and then fawn was this fourth one. Is there a slippery slope between repair and fawn? There can be. It depends on which part of you is at the wheel. You know, when I talk about remembering the us, look, I consider myself a feminist family therapist. I have been for 40 years. And uh, I'm not unaware of how many women traditionally have subsumed their voice, their wants and needs, uh, for the sake of peace in the relationship. I ain't talking about that. I like to say in relationships, I want the mighty to melt. I want the weak to stand up. And both of those moves are a move into increased vulnerability. Uh, for the big puffed up one, the grandiose one, uh, it's vulnerable to come down and open your heart and say, I'm scared. For the more quote-unquote codependent one, the one down placating one, 
it's a move into vulnerability to assert yourself and stand up. So I'm not talking about doing away with the individual. I'm just talking about keeping the individual in context. And a lot of people shift from being over-accommodating to now I found my voice, go screw yourself. Uh, That's not a step up. You know, I'll get killed for this, but one of the things I say is that after 50 years of feminism, a lot of women have earned the right to be as obnoxious as men have always been. I don't want you to shift from one side or to the other side of the dichotomy. I want to blow up the dichotomy. I want related, loving power. A, a lot of 12-step therapy, uh, you know, as a couple's therapist, individual therapy is the bane of my existence. I wouldn't put up with that if I was you. And people get, I call it individual empowerment. I don't want you to be individually empowered. I want you to be relationally empowered. I'm going to bring my full strength into this relationship. I'm going to insist on what I want. Now, what do you need, honey? How can I help you deliver for me? Who says that? Uh, The golden rule of thinking relationally is, what could I give you to help you come through for me? That's thinking relationally. We're a team. Let me empower you to deliver for me what I'm asking for. This is not an adversarial contest. We need to work together. So if we define power as something that derives from some sort of relationship or collective effort, what happens when a person is not in a relationship or in some sort of community? If their sense of power is derived largely from interacting with others and they're in a a moment or a stage in their life where they're sort of like in, in relative solitude. How does that affect the individual's sense of power? Well, first of all, I make a distinction. It's Rianne Eisler, actually, the the chalice and the blade, between uh, what we call power over versus power with. Okay. Dominance versus agency. And the whole uh, book uh, is about trading in the delusion of power over and control for the wisdom of cooperation and uh, collaboration with yourself. You know, let me before I answer your question, let me back up a bit. Uh, this book is a critique of the of the toxic culture of individualism. Right. And uh, what that means is the word individual means I'm apart from nature. I'm an individual. And individualism, uh, which has uh, one of the chapters is the history. Of it. it was created by a bunch of, guess what, uh, wealthy, privileged white men in the Enlightenment. It, it, it hasn't been around forever. But individualism fuses with patriarchy, which I've been writing about for 30 years. Patriarchy teaches us not only are we apart from nature, but we're above nature and we control it. We dominate it. Whether the nature you're trying to dominate is your partner or your kids or uh, the result of your efforts, like landing that job, or your brain I need to be less negative, or your body, I need to lose 10 pounds. This power over control model is insane, and it wreaks havoc in our relationship to ourselves, in our relationships to the people we love, 
in our society, we're living now in an extremely divisive one-up, one-down culture uh, to the planet and to spirit. And the essence, and I'm proud to say, I start with neurobiology in the book, what happens in our brains. And I move to personal relationships, and it's full of relationship skills. The last third of the book zooms out, and I talk about this power over model in terms of racism, sexism, homophobia, our relationship to nature itself, to the planet, and to spirit. If we don't trade in the dominance power over model for a, a, I call it ecological humility, the understanding that we're in our systems, not above it. If we don't move from dominance to collaboration, we're in deep shit uh, as a species. So anyway, I define power as agency, not dominance. Got it. But let me answer your question. Somebody out of relationships. Jonathan, I've never met anybody out of relationships. I don't know if you have. Uh, These are the same relationship skills. If it's work, or your uh, family at home, or your dog, uh, or or, uh, the kids on the playground. Relationship skills are relationship skills. Uh, It's about how you relate to your garden. Uh, It's about shifting from you versus me, power and control, to you and me together. I am in this with you, not at you. Uh, and that shift can be the way that you drive your car. Yeah, and, and I love that context. And and also, if you think about it, just the way that you step into your life, the way that you step into every part of your life, you know, if you step in with the frame of how can we all collaborate in a way that feels amazing to all of us, and like, and you and you constantly are asking that question: How do we all win? How do we all do this together in a way where we all rise, rather than how do I set this up so that I am the one who ends with the most? I mean, the former just feels like such a more joyful way to step into your life, to step into conversations, to step into walking in the woods. And like, like you said, we're relating to everything and everyone all day long. And if you go in there, you know, with this just much more expansive view, it just feels like a more energizing, a more upbeat, a more nourishing way to live your life because it's you're you're removing a lot of the adversarial context of moving through each day by doing that i think that's right i don't i don't move through my day as an adversary i move through my day as a participant one of the things i uh, i say is our relationships are our biosphere it's the atmosphere we breathe and once we replace dominance for what i call ecological humility understanding we're not above it, we're in it, then everything, it changes. You know, as a couple's therapist, let me tell you, if one of you wins and the other one loses, you both lose. Now, that's not pie-in-the-sky idealism. You both lose because, I've seen it, the loser will make the winner pay for it. Trust me, you're not outside of the dance, you're in it. You're intimately connected. And so it's in your interest to take care of the biosphere because you're dependent upon it. You breathe. You can pollute your biosphere over here with a temper tantrum, but you'll breathe in that pollution in your partner's withdrawal or sexlessness or coldness. You are connected. You cannot escape. And once you wake up to the interconnectedness that is the net we all live in, all of the rules change. 
And it's not about me, 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 me. Whether you're walking in the woods, whether you're fighting, hopefully constructively with your partner, it's about the whole. And how are we as a whole going to make this work? Yeah. As you mentioned, you dive into the neurophysiology of individualism, which I thought was fascinating. And you describe this phenomenon you call social baseline theory, this notion that our brains are actually not designed to self-regulate in isolation. Talk to me more about this. I found this fascinating. Well, from from what we've learned about the brain, from a neurological perspective, this idea of the freestanding rugged individual is just bullshit. That's not how we're designed. We co-regulate each other's nervous systems all day long, and we depend upon it. One of the things I say in the book is, if you want to see what happens to a nervous system that's completely cut off from social interaction, look at what solitary confinement does to somebody. It drives them crazy. Dan Siegel, pioneer of neurobiology, has said social interaction is not a luxury. It is an essential nutrient to the brain. We need it. So social baseline theory is one of the newer theories that I like a lot. It goes like this. We know that all animals are calorie counters. All animals conserve energy. As I introduced this concept, I talked about being in the Serengeti, and I saw a lioness hunting a warthog, and they they were crouched in the ground, and then boom, they both took off. And then just as suddenly, boom, they both stopped. They'd stop in utter unison. And I turned to my friend who was an old safari hand. I said, what the hell? He said, conservation of calories. I said, what? He said, that moment was the moment both lion and warthog knew the warthog would never be caught. And they just stopped. Why expend your energy? Now, the way this works in the brain, we've known this forever, is the prefrontal cortex, the most mature part of our brain, which develops up to 26 years old, develops last, is an energy hog. You know, it's like the CPU that takes a lot of electricity. And this more mature part of the brain offloads uh, more rudimentary tasks to less calorie-consuming parts of the brain, simpler parts of the brain, like breathing, for example, or your heart rate. We know that. What we, we didn't know until very recently is you can offload your brain to other people's brains. Simple example. I tend the fire, and I'm looking out for saber-toothed tigers. My prefrontal cortex is working overtime. Versus, I tend the fire, and my cavemate, Ralph, stands behind me, and he looks for saber-toothed tigers. Much less expenditure in my brain. My brain is working less because the two of us are sharing one brain. And we share brains like this all day long. They call it social baseline theory. The brain operates at rest when it's in a social matrix. The brain operates actually more actively when you're alone. It calms down when you're with others because we share brain functions. This is a revolutionary way of looking at how we operate. It's so extraordinary that the new neurobiologists are saying the individual may not be the proper study of science. It should be the collective 
that is the how do we stay healthy with others uh, how do our brains work with others how do we regulate we co-regulate. So this whole idea of an individual who does everything for himself is just not how we human beings operate. It's a myth. Yeah, w- which makes a lot of sense, uh, frankly. <laughs> you know, that's the reason that we still exist as as human beings is because enough people figured out that I can't do this thing alone that they decided to support themselves in community. Although certainly the last few years, I think is challenging a lot of that. There is so much rhetoric, uh, so many resources um, being put behind this notion of individualism and that being like the the ultimate aspiration for us as human beings. And it's just a recipe for violence and for loneliness. And we've never been a more lonely society than we are right now. I'm I I I me me me. We are desi- we're pack animals. We're designed to be connected and relational. It's how our bodies work best. You know, intimacy is as much a factor in physical health as and not smoking and eating right and exercise. One of my favorite studies was there was a, a study. There, there are hundreds of studies that intimacy it does well for our body. But one of my favorites is there was a study, talk about simplicity, a Dartmouth study, people recovering from surgery in the hospital had shorter stays in the hospital correlated to how many visitors they had. The more visitors you had, the quicker you were back home. We, We are born to be connected. It's the only thing that makes us happy. And one of the things I say in the book is, look at addiction, what we self medicate. Uh, when we self-medicate, is the pain of disconnection. I gave a talk uh, for a group once that said the cure for sex addiction is intimacy. I think the cure for most everything is intimacy. It's what we're designed to be. Yeah. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I remember um, looking at some of the research that John Cacioppo, who like was one of the leading researchers in loneliness for years, who's no longer with us, sadly, but reading about the research on loneliness, which is very different than being alone. You can be surrounded by people and still feel, you know, like incredibly lonely. But the research on the, not just the psychological effect, but the physiological effect of the feeling, the experience of loneliness down to, you know, like dramatic increase for risk of disease, for in inflammation, it's stunning how it affects you. And and like you said, you know, the 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 most effective and free treatment is to be reconnected with other human beings or reconnected with you know like other beings whether they're people or animals or nature and or all and yet still we hang on to this notion that like the purest unit the ultimate aspiration is for me to be utterly self-reliant as a human being and especially now it's causing so much harm yeah well, that's partly why I wrote the book, is yeah. because individualism is on the rise. Uh, the strong man, uh, patriarchy, traditional masculinity is all, there's been a great backlash. And uh, there's this upsurge of all of this uh, nonsense. Um, relationality is the only thing that will make us happy. It is the panacea. It's the pearl of great price. I, uh, I deal with a lot of high-powered guys. And I speak to them about what I call the difference between gratification and relational joy. Mm. Gratification is a short-term hit of pleasure. It's great. Pretty girl smiles at you. You make a hit on the uh, stock market. All good. I like gratification in its place. Relational joy, and think of parenting. Relational joy is a deeper down pleasure Sometimes it's gratifying, sometimes it's a pain in the ass, but it's the pleasure of just being there and being in connection with the person. I tell a story about my son, Alexander. When he was little, little, he was a maniac. And I was giving him a timeout. He had to be like three foot. We didn't have locks, so I was holding his bedroom door shut and he was trying to get it open. You know, with lightning was coming out of his, I mean, thunderclouds. And there was a part of me that wanted to throw a little bugger right out the window. I mean, I hated him. But a deeper down part of me was like, you mighty little spirit, you, you're going to do just great. And I talked to people in general and men in particular. Many of the men that I see have lived most of their lives out of their adaptive child, have been governed by gratification, and have little to no relational joy. And I tell this story, uh, if I may. Now, I'm proud to say none other than Bruce Springsteen uh, wrote the foreword to my book, and he quite generously spoke about, referenced his work uh, with me and Patty, very, very generous of him. So this is not Bruce. I've worked a lot with Hollywood people and musicians and celebs. Uh, this is a rock and roll star 
And he told me when he was on stage, he was alive. When he was at home with his family, he was like a computer on sleep mode. He was really depressed. And I talked to him over time, as I do many of the men I work with, about what I call becoming a true family man, getting up out of yourself and giving. So his four kids would be like, Daddy, Daddy, no, 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 no. And he began to say, okay, yes. And I began to teach him about relational joy and about the pleasure of deep connection. And he came to me one day and he said, I just spent the best day of my life. I said, okay. It wasn't in a stadium in front of 60,000 people. He said, my wife and kids and I spent all day Sunday in our PJs. We played a 10-hour vicious game of sadomonopoly. And I forgot all about everything. I was in the moment with my family. It was the happiest day of my life. That's relational joy. And that's what will fulfill us. And nothing else can take its place. Mm, yeah, I love that. It sounds like, and, and it's, it's been around for time immortal. Um, it, as you were describing it, two things came into my mind. One is, in Buddhism, one of the four immeasurables is loosely translated to appreciative joy which is a lot of what you're describing. and But the way that I learned the concept that you're talking about, actually, what, like it comes from a Yiddish term, nachis. <laughs> and this is, for those who don't know the word or the feeling, you're like this is the joy that you feel when somebody who you love so unconditionally goes out into the world, succeeds, whatever it may be, that you feel their elation, their joy as your own. Um, and you wish it for them, you know, and it's not about you. It's just you seeing them, people who you love go out and, and have this incredible feeling gives you that same feeling. Um, in, in an interesting way, you know, it's, it's both selfless and self-centered. <laughs> well, I talk about the difference between short-term greed and enlightened self-interest. Yeah. Uh, being related is uh, self-interest. It's just wise self-interest. Right. Yeah, and I think it's an important distinction. You've used the word intimacy a number of times also, and one of the things you write about is is a modified version of that term, what you call fierce intimacy. What's the yeah. distinction here? Fierce intimacy is my shorthand for the capacity to take each other on. Uh, most couples stop taking each other on after a few years. And they tell themselves that they're compromising or accepting, but they're really settling. And resentment builds, uh, sexuality dies. The first casualty when you stop being honest with each other is sex and your eroticism. And what I say uh, is that there's a reason why people back off of each other, because they don't have the skills to pull it off and have it be successful. You tell your partner uh, the truth about what ails you, and they get defensive, or they block it, or they counter with what ails, or, 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 or. They don't know the skills of repair. You know, historically, we have never wanted more from our relationships than we do right now. Our grandparents' generation didn't care about all this stuff. If nobody beat each other or drank too much, they, got all, they were fine. Nowadays, we really want to be lifelong lovers. We want long walks on the beach, holding hands. We want great sex in their 70s and 80s. We want heart-to-heart -heart talks. We really want a lifelong lover relationship, but our anti-relational, narcissistic, addictive, 
patriarchal individualistic culture does not give our sons and daughters what they need to pull off this ambition. So that's where the book comes in. First, you need a map. How to start thinking relationally instead of individualistically. And then you need a set of tools. How to, for example, stand up for yourself and cherish your partner at the same time. How to digest grief. What to do when you're in your wise adult and your partner's stuck in his or her adaptive child and they ain't coming out. Uh, How to tolerate disappointment. These are all essential skills in a relationship which I would love taught in uh, elementary school and junior high and high, but which uh, we need to be taught as adults uh, because uh, we didn't learn them in the family growing up and we didn't learn them in this culture. We can do better. Yeah, and um, and underneath all of that, and this is one of the things that you write as well, you write, we must face with compassion our own orphan parts, our shame and judgments. So part of it is about skills, but part of it also is sort of saying, okay, <laughs> Let me look at this adapted child. Let me look at these things that are within me. And, you know, so part of it is about skilling your way into this fierce intimacy and this like developing something that we all yearn for. But it sounds like part of it also is not focusing on self-awareness for the purpose of deepening into individualism, but self focusing on self-awareness and self-discovery for the purpose of being able to bring yourself more wholly, more openly, more fully to a relationship. That's exactly right. We have to tend you know, these inner children, and, I, and in the book and in my work, I talk a lot about your inner adaptive child and wounded child. I do personification work where I have big burly guys talk to their little boy in a chair and put their arms around them. But what you need, these uh, inner children are really just personifications of trauma states. They're the you at the age you were when you were traumatized and what you were experiencing then and how you adapted to that experience. It got frozen in time. And over and over again, I bring the wise adult part of you into relationship with these younger parts of you. One of the things I say uh, is that maturity comes when we tend to our inner children and don't foist them off on our partners to deal with. Mm. Yeah. And as you write, intimacy is, this is not something that we just magically have. This is something that we do. You know, it's something that, we, it, it feels like it's it's less just a matter of who we are. It's a matter of the way that we move into our lives and the way that we make decisions and, and take actions. And it's it arises from that. Including actions that heal our own trauma from the past. Yeah. Our, our relationships are a great crucible for that. You know, my darling wife, Belinda, uh, will look at me when I'm being particularly obnoxious and uh, get that little smile of hers and kind of bow and say, uh, I just want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to work on myself. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Beautiful. Well, this feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live a good life, to live a life of authentic connection to myself, to the people I love, to my uh, society, to uh, people who are unlike me, other cultures, other races, to nature and the planet at large, and uh, ultimately to connection to spirit. 
the largest wise adult in the arena. Hmm. I had a, a guy I worked with, and he had a beautiful image. Uh, he was triggered, uh, very triggered. And his image, he closed his eyes and he visualized he was putting his arms around his overwhelmed little boy and spirit was putting its arms around both of them. Maybe we'll end with that. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation that we had with Julie and John Gottman about how to build deeper loving relationships. You'll find a link to Julie and John's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Spark. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.